presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer. We're on the air with the school kids' questionnaire. Hey, everybody. We're talking Chapo here. It's your show for the week with me, Will Meneker, as always, but also Virgil Texas. Hey. And Matt Christman. Hello. Uh, joining us this week is Michael Kupperman to talk about his graphic memoir, All the Answers. Michael, how's it going? Uh, it's going fine, except for the weather. Which it's is- it's a bit muggy out in New York City right now. But um, so, yeah, to get into this, uh, your book is called All the Answers. It's a graphic memoir about a father and son, but also about a specific period in history. I would describe this book as mouse but instead of the holocaust it's a uh, game show from the 1940s and 50s featuring child prodigies could you tell us what quiz kids was and your connection to it oh sure well my father was on this show called quiz kids which started in august 1940 and went until i think 1953 uh it lasted about a year after he left it but uh it was a show where they'd have five bright children on and they'd answer questions uh, about math or popular topics or news. And then the three highest scoring ones would come back the next week. And uh, it was a huge deal, especially during World War II. It started out as a radio show and then became a TV game show sort of with the dawn of television after World War II. But, uh, I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say for a period of time there in like the 40s and maybe early 1950s, your father as a child was one of the most famous people in America. Yeah. Joel, Joel Kupperman, the quiz kid. Yeah, he was a household name. He was, you know, it was fascinating going through the newspapers and just seeing where and how he was name-checked. Like, Bob Hope used him as a punchline in jokes all through the 40s, <laughs> you know. Or Pat O'Brien, uh, he's a old movie star, was like, my dog's as smart as Joel Kupperman. You know, it's that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> The, the first one of the first uh, big computers that was built at Harvard uh, was nicknamed Big Joel. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Deep Joel. Yeah. Um, so like, but when you were growing up, like, when, like, when did you become aware of this fact that, that your dad was for this period of time in his life a huge celebrity? I was aware that he'd been famous, but it was always kind of a trivia. You know, it was just a fact. Like once I was on the show and a lot of people watched it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let's not talk about it. So I was kind of aware of it, and there'd be reminders sometimes, like that thing on um, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, or you know, what was the thing on Rocky and Bullwinkle? They they had an episode title. They said uh, it was coming next week, blah blah blah, Rocky and Bullwinkle, or whatever happened to Joel Kupperman, which I think was a catchphrase for a little bit in the maybe early sixties. Uh, I saw it also in a calculator ad from that period. <laughs> So um, so there were reminders, but it, when it's at a remove, you don't understand. Like, fame is very weird. It's the sentimentality that people pour into it. And when you look at it from a distance or just hear it described, it doesn't really make sense or have any impact. It's only when you really start to look at it. And I didn't look at it until until recently. There would be reminders. All Like, I remember when I was in uh, you know college and, and got really into old comedy and the Marx Brothers, and then I started looking at a book about the Marx Brothers and saw a picture of my father in it, and it's a real shock because <laughs> he was also very kind of not anti-comedy, but, you know, he, he considered it frivolous. So, you know, to realize later that he'd actually been a comedy performer with some, you know, very famous people was really kind of startling. 
but he would be like a, a foil to people like uh, Chico Marx or Milton Berle or uh, you know Eddie Cantor. So they would they would play off him in these sort of variety shows. Yeah, yeah, basically. He'd, he'd, yeah. He'd, he'd, at the beginning, he'd just be kind of cute or, you know, dispute their math knowledge. They'd, <laughs> he'd make fun of them for being ignorant. And then um, later on, he did some more sophisticated skit work. There's a, there's a Fred Allen show from, I think, 1946 you can uh, find online called, with, called Murder in the Penthouse, where he, he's pretty funny, actually, you know, playing a character version of himself. Good evening, murder lovers. Our mystery tonight is called Mayhem in the Penthouse, or the millionaire knew he couldn't take it with him, but he didn't know he was leaving it so soon. <laughs> the characters in our play are the master criminologist. I am Commissioner Cupperman, formerly with Scotland Yard. I'll solve this crime or my name isn't Commissioner Cupperman. Formerly with Scotland Yard. So, like, b- before this, this Quiz Kids uh, phenomenon, before, like, the, the advent of, of this show, you talk a little bit in the book about the invention or, or the creation of the, like, the concept of a child prodigy in American culture. Like, where did that come from and where did it first appear? I, the, it first started to be applied to children in the 19th century. Originally, a prodigy was just something amazing, like uh, a prodigy appeared in the sky, they'd say, to, a, to describe a portentous miracle or something. And then um, prodigy started to apply to people, and then it started to be applied to children because the children of immigrants were you know, trying to show off what they could do. I mean, a lot of child prodigies of the, the golden age of it were the children of immigrants trying to really establish that they had gifts. I mean, that's also where superheroes come from, from immigrants trying to show what human beings were capable of and what they were capable of. Child so, prodigies like, like Mickey O. Mickey, the Irishman who could add. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but like, it, it, from the very beginning, it was, all, it was always connected to show business. And performance. Yeah, originally it was it was singers and violinists, but then there was math prodigies, chess prodigies, you know. Right. Uh, and and the twenties and thirties were really the golden age of prodigies. I mean, that industry is still going, but it's not the same anymore. The pro- the child prodigy industry. Yeah, and like it was ben, a, like Ben Shapiro. Yeah, he, he plays yeah. the violin. Yeah, and yeah. Dan Nanan, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the child prodigy comedian. Right. Oh, yeah. and the well, and the Tiger Moms kids. Yeah, I want, actually, I want to talk about. It does seem like the, the now because politics is the spectacle. That yeah, there's a lot of there's more there's more uh, <laughs> like political prodigy kids. Like I remember that kid Joel Crone or something. Yes. From like five years, he like spoke this was, at CPAC. He spoke at CPAC. He was like a thirteen-year-old kid who wrote a book about conservatism, and he's like, uh, "Actually, these liberals—they don't understand <laughs> that, economics one hundred and one." That kid had a, a leftward conversion. He did. He turned into he went, an, he went to college. Yeah. He got laid. He became an Obama guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He became uh, an insufferable liberal college kid. Yeah, and now, but now there's like mega ten-year-olds who are on Fox News and stuff. Like there's this like eight-year-old kid with a mega hat going, "I like that he's building the wall." Yeah. So that's the, that's it's like that's how low the bar is instead of having to actually do math like actually difficult math you just repeat what your parents say at dinner about immigrants and they put you on television <laughs> that's yeah that's yeah. math well this makes true. actually this this is this makes an interesting contrast with uh your your father's experience and and the adv- the creation of this quiz kids show uh how like how did this show like well actually first of all 
like how did your how did your father become this like math genius or or like be able to just you know rattle off like algebra without paper and pencil at like five or six years old he just had a brain that that worked that way and and that was his one thing that he could really do i mean there was all this story about how he'd been drilled in it by uh his father or or tutored a little i don't know it's not really clear to me but you know he just i mean it's almost like a special you know gift like he could just do this one thing in other words his brain you know he I hate to say it, but it was kind of undeveloped in other ways. Like, but the math, you know, he could really do. Uh, I, I can't explain it, I guess. And so how did he get involved with this Quiz Kids show and become such a star on it? Supposedly, he wrote a letter, you know, that was really cute, that was then reprinted all through the media saying, you know, blah, 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 I'm my little kid and I'm cute. And, I, you know, my grandfather has false teeth and, <laughs> you know, I want to be on your show. Uh, he kind of was... He was acting like that wasn't true. I mean, a lot about what was written about him also was just made up, like press agent stuff. And you can see that all through the history. But supposedly he wrote a letter. He was on it the first time when he was five. He was uh, amazing with the math, but he didn't know other things. They told him to go away, read Time magazine, come back. And he did, uh, you know, a couple months later. And then he was just on it for the next 10 years. How would this started out as a radio show? Like, how, how would this show work? It would, like you said, like there's a panel of kids, and then the top three would advance. Like who, like who were they? Like who who wrote the questions, and like how were they sort of quizzed? Well, it was a, it was a bunch of people on the. Uh, most of the questions were sent in, and then they were formatted by the Quiz Kids staff. You know who were, uh, as my father described them, liberal men, uh, and uh, and then yeah, you you talk in the book about how. You know, he would get sent like reams of fan mail. Servicemen in the European theater would send him like Nazi memorabilia. They yeah. had, like, picked off bodies or something. Like you get thousands and thousands of, of you know fan mail and, and letters and things like that. Like, what do you have any sense of like why at this time at this sort of like at the very dawn, like right before the very dawn of like kind of mass American culture through the media, why this this quiz kid format became so popular well also i think it was that um the dropping child mortality rate because of the improvements in medicine <laughs> so they were like hey kids they can do things other than die until the fields <laughs> well no yeah amazing exactly. child without polio <laughs> yeah because up till then children had been imperfect adults so it started with a thin end of like look it can sing you know and yeah. then oh it's playing the piano and then it was like wow it's saying things that are not adult but aren't maybe as uh hateful or worthy of being ignored as we thought you know it's kind of like oh they're little people huh you know now that they don't die so easily and uh we have modern media we can treasure what they're saying so there was this period of like i think that was part of it like it doesn't make sense after that 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 these children would be so famous just for being sort of cute and answering questions i mean like your, your dad did have this incredibly high iq Right. Yeah. So people were like they were they were impre impressed by that. But um, the your book takes certain like the, the book has sort of a shift when you, you, you know, it, the book is a lot about you investigating this phenomenon yourself and trying to learn about your, your father in, in the process. Um, but when you when when the frame of World War Two and the producer of Quiz Kids sort of it's comes into focus, it's sort of like a big piece of this story sort of 
fits right in or sort of slots in to this, like what was really going on with all this. Right. No, it, it made so much more sense to me when I realized that, you know, he had been so famous partly because he was Jewish and it was World War II. And then it all made so much more sense. And the producer of this, of this Quiz Kids show was doing it consciously as a form of propaganda. I, I think so. I mean, he certainly thought so. When I talked to my father about this before he wound up, you know, going into dementia, that was the one thing he really wanted to say. He said, I was manufactured. They wanted a smart Jewish child. He said this over and over and over. So and your he, your father was an accomplice to cultural Marxism. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, Matt, you bring that up, but uh, I I sort of I sort of like the idea that okay, so this is part of our war propaganda efforts. We want to combat the anti-Semitism of both the Third Reich and the cultural prejudices of you know average Americans who you know distrust Jewish people or think there's some kind of strange other we're going to do that by showing them that uh this precocious know-it-all that's smarter than them <laughs> you know like yeah so <laughs> like, uh he's wealthy too and he controls the media right. you'll love this yeah, kid yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so this was a way of introducing american culture to the idea that that Jew, the jews were real people that they were real Americans and that they were in a way just like you, but doing it through the, like the oddest way, which is this child prodigy thing, which is always like sort of is always going to be like strange. It's always, it's always going to be kind of an other, like the, the figure of a child prodigy is like, is I think like untrustworthy in a certain way where people are fascinated by it, but it's in the way that they would be by something sort of like repellent or, you know, strange yeah i think i think the producers realized that and that's why the message the show kept sending out year after year was these kids are very normal you know they do photo shoots of them doing normal things they'd have articles written saying look how normal they are you know yeah that was the main thing they were always reassuring. yeah we see joel kuberman having a normal one yeah <laughs> but you know like as part of this like uh you, you say that like the show like you know as part, sold something like 125 million dollars in war bonds yeah. during world war ii it was like a a huge propaganda effort and then but as part of that your dad as a child got to like go to hollywood travel the whole country meet all sorts of celebrities and like he met up uh, there's one point in the book where he uh he impresses orson wells and marlena dietrich with Doing the multiplication tables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Was there no other entertainment in this period? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the other thing about the like again, like we we're talking about, like this book is really captures the kind of like a dawn of like American mass culture and entertainment culture. But as Virgil points out, it really is hilarious how starved for entertainment people were at that time that like just anything you could have anything. Just having someone speaking in your home who is slightly different than you and your family. That was enough. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to these exotic accents. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. We're going down to the theater and we're going to watch this uh, this child correct Donald O'Connor's math. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, again... Back of you know this this thread of uh, anti semitism. Another one of the hugely famous Americans your dad got to meet as a child was Henry Ford. Yeah, yeah. Henry Ford, uh, probably more responsible than any other American for mainstreaming anti semitism in the twentieth century. Yeah, absolutely. The International Jew published in the Dearborn Gazette or whatever. And yeah. he would, when, when I, as you as you point out, I didn't I didn't know this, but uh, 
the international Jew was also those pamphlets were handed out at every Ford dealership in the yeah, country he, as well. He published this newspaper out of Dearborn that was anti-Semitic in content, and Ford dealerships were required to stock it during the 1920s. And I think what finally, uh, you know, started to push him back was that public resentment was growing, and he faced a suit, I think, from the B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation League. This is at the height of your dad's fame during World War II. Of course, Henry Ford had to also walk it back because you know the public opinion that you know were fighting a war against the Nazis yeah, and fascism. Yeah. Who you know, let's be honest. Up until a few years ago, Henry Ford, like many captains of American industry, uh, were doing more than just playing footsie with fascism. I mean, oh, you yeah, were no, he was you know outright embracing it. So Henry Ford became sort of use this as a sort of his own propaganda efforts to, you know, be seen with the quiz kids, but also your dad. Yeah. To be seen with this Jewish child. Yeah, he was very insistent on meeting my dad. And in the book, um, he, he comes to meet the quiz kids and your dad isn't there. And Henry Ford takes it upon himself to go to the hotel or wherever your, your father and grandparents were staying at. Yeah. And come in and introduce himself. Yeah, and the story was that my father had had a cold, so he didn't go with the other kids to the factory that day. But I actually had it confirmed by another relative recently that uh, he had not had a cold, that my mother, my grandmother, sorry, had wanted to shield him from Ford, who, you know, was a legendary monster to Jews. (laughs) And there's no record of what, you know, how old is your dad at this time? Uh, that he, he would have been like, like seven, yeah. So what? Uh, yes, your your seven year old dad and Henry Ford talked about. And yeah. Sort of. He he took a meeting with him. You yeah. Know? There's so much. There's so much. I really wish someone had been taking notes. I wish my grandmother had been taking notes instead of just hoarding memorabilia. But he met so many more people that you know I I couldn't even know about. I mean, um, in the show, I I know that uh like. J. Edgar Hoover and Eleanor Roosevelt asked questions in the 1945 season. I assume they were pre-recorded, but I don't know. Jimmy Stewart was on there. You know, just if you're fascinated by 1940s culture, he was just swimming around in it and doing tours every week across America to different places. They went to pretty much every state, I think. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Abbott and Costello gave your dad a dog at yeah. one point. Yeah. Just that, as a present. Well, that was the one time he brought up the show ever and just was like, oh, this thing happened to me. He yeah, literally <laughs> never did that before or since. So, yeah, you're watching an Abbott and Costello movie on TV, and then out of nowhere your dad just says, oh, I know those guys. They gave me a dog. They gave <laughs> yeah. me a dog as a present when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I know those guys. They really screwed up painting my house back in the 30s. <laughs> bungled the whole thing on this ridiculous argument. <laughs> oh, Don't even God. get me started on what they did with <laughs> the mummy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, another thing your dad did again as a like eight or nine year old uh, spoke in front of one of the first general assemblies of the UN. It was the first. It was the, the first, first one general that. assembly of the yeah, UN yeah. to give like the, the, a, a hopeful message from the children of America to the world. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He was uh, he was. They wrote a speech from the Quiz Kids office, and he delivered it. They did the opening ceremonies at um, Rockefeller Center, and then the actual first sessions were in Queens. And, uh, yeah, and they, he and, uh, Harv Bennett were ball boys for, a uh, all-star Esquire ball game with, uh, Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb as coaches, you know, <laughs> also that year. Like they he had so many experiences. I, I hope, I hope your dad wasn't playing second when Ty Cobb came in for right. so, this little Jewish kid. You know, He's probably waiting, waiting to put those spikes up. <laughs> um, your dad was in a movie. 
yeah. called uh, Chip <laughs> Chip Off the Old Block, yeah. playing himself. Yeah. With uh, well, uh, across with the star of uh, Singing in the Rain, Donald O'Connor. Yeah, yeah Donald O'Connor, and uh, he plays. It's like it takes place at like the Navy Academy, and it's like Donald O'Connor and your dad like stitch up the the sort of stuffy dean, yeah, yeah. who isn't aware of who the quiz kid phenomenon is, and he's yeah. like, but, 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 yeah. but this is merely a child. I don't get it. <laughs> right. He says he can't join the Navy Academy, but you know, because he couldn't possibly know the answer to this multiplication question. <laughs> it's like that tap dancing play episode of The Simpsons. You know, <laughs> he I'm, asks the one thing. <laughs> I'm racking my brain to think of the last Hollywood movie whose plot hinged on solving a math problem in your head. <laughs> I'm coming. Oh, Chris has one. Uh, mean Girls. Yes, that's it. Huh. And oh. that it literally has. Look, that's a quiz, kid ending yeah that's it we just solved it thank you chris you, you mentioned the book you mentioned uh early on there was uh, another one of these quiz kids there's a guy named uh jared gerard darrow who is another one of these sort of kid geniuses and like in this figure there's sort of a you know a sort of a, a prescience of like kind of the dark side of like what this was all doing to your father or where this was going like in that this kid was you know again, became very popular because of how smart he, uh, he was, but then came off as very kind of like bitter and condescending to people, was always very flip, but there was always this kind of being being warped by this adulation and attention as well. Yeah, yeah. He he, he got insufferable really quick. And um, in an interview uh, I found online with Harv Bennett, which was uh, later removed. He, he was said, another one of the quiz kids. He was, yeah. he was the one who went on to work on Star Trek, uh, Wrath of Khan and stuff. Great he, uh, yeah. He um he was saying there also was he had a hint of lavender was the way he put it. <laughs> so um yeah and it it was really bad. It went really bad for him. You know, he uh he he was a big deal on the show briefly and then was thrown off it and then his his life just never recovered. So the show moves from um radio to television. And it's like one of the first like TV shows, but then like as as it goes on and as your father Joel sort of goes through puberty, the show gets increasingly gimmicky and like the, the, the appeal of this quiz kid, you know, begins to sort of lose its shine as he gets older, you know, the voice changes and becomes a little, you know, more of an awkward adolescent, right? Nobody wants to see a quiz teen. (laughs) Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, You know, we were talking about this again, we were talking about this um, when you got here, but like, comparing it to today's uh, game shows and like there's sort of the, the, the college Jeopardy tournament is about the closest you get. But then I was also remembered, reminded of the uh, are you smarter than a fifth grader show with Jeff Foxworthy on Fox. But the conceit of that show is that these are just regular stupid fifth graders and like the, question, yeah, the questions adults are, are even stupider yeah, than that. Exactly. The questions yeah. are at a fifth grade level and the joke is on the adult contestants who, you know, right. don't know how many sides a triangle has or something like that. Don't wow. they have I guess it's college level. Like this is a pretty big quiz show in the UK, right? Yeah, University Challenge. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But those are college students. Yeah, those are college yeah. students. Yeah, they got they stopped doing the kids. They they stopped quizzing children <laughs> they, they, they realize that that violates the geneva they've convention. had some child genius program recently though they still pop up you know here and there but i mean like you know part of the tragedy of this of, of this these child genius figures is like that adolescent pu- puberty come down is so harsh 
And that when your dad eventually left the show when he was like 16, they, what, did he get tired of it or did they get tired of him? I, I'm convinced he exploded and was like, I've had enough. Get me out of here. Finally. I mean, you know, been, because there was a graduation on the age of the show. You were supposed to leave when you were 16. And in his case, I've seen I found newspaper articles where they're saying he was going to stay on. But then there's never any announcement of him leaving the show. I couldn't find it. I could never find when his last show was. And I think he just was like, I've had enough. I've got to get out of here. I can't take it anymore. He'd been doing it for a decade, something like over 400 shows. Yeah, and, and like it was all just, these other appearances. He, he stayed on it for year after year after year. He did, uh, I don't know, maybe 300 radio shows and at least 70 TV shows. So, and he just... I, I, you know, it was so bad. And I don't think he, they ever negotiated for a raise. I think he was still getting $75 a week the whole time. And, you know, it was just a ridiculous situation. And now that he'd been on TV, he didn't get anything out of it. He clearly wasn't a TV performer. Anyone could see that except my grandmother, who was the person pushing this whole thing. But now that he'd been on TV, everyone knew what he looked like. So he was a target for the next few years. And he became, you know, reviled by his peers, picked on, bullied. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just an outcast among his own peer group. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think University of Chicago did him any favors by having him have a Nazi as a roommate, which apparently is what happened. <laughs> what, what happened with that? <laughs> Milton Friedman was your father's roommate? What? I, I won't name him because I don't want you know people to look him up, but it was the guy who talks about oh, bullying Hitler. him. Talks, <laughs> yeah talks proudly about bullying him. That's where that story comes from in the book. And, uh, you know, this guy who then, like, became an associate of George Lincoln Rockwell and stuff. Wow. It's fascinating to find his archive online. He was an early, uh, angry, internet racist guy. So, kind of ahead of the Ahead of the curve? <laughs> of the curve? Yeah. So, so the classic da- odd couple situation. <laughs> yeah. <like that. laughs> Someone should have made a TV show about that. <laughs> Seriously. That's how he could have gotten his second wind <laughs> yeah, in, in TV. You know? Right. Now, that's yeah. entertainment. I don't care about math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but already by the mid-50s, he's being referred to as the Garbo of the Quiz Kids. And uh, there's, there's an article actually after the quiz show he appeared on where uh, Ernie Kovacs, producer, I don't know if you know Ernie yes. Kovacs, but he, she's saying, I can get to anyone in Anyone for that show, anyone except Joel Kupperman is the one person I couldn't get. Huh. So it, it, it sort of comes to a head, and there, there's a point in the book where you describe it as like a college advisor or professor literally just says to him, Why don't you leave the country? Yeah, and that was a big that moment was like a, for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, it was like a, like a road to Damascus style moment where he realized that he had never even considered that. Yeah. And it yet, but it opened up this like, whole realm of like living a life that he had never considered at that point but even as like it's funny like when you're a kid you don't really cons- you're not you don't have the self-awareness to like consider like living your own life you just yeah. sort of like life happens to you and you sort of go with it but like it was like 16 17 like that was the first time he like had a feeling of like oh this is my life that i can live yeah yeah and and the mistake he did i think was uh he made was coming back so he studied it at Cambridge for a while. Yeah, for three years. For three years. And then you said, like, you wish in the book, you say, I I wish I could have gone back in time and just told him to stay there. Yeah. He comes back right at the time in the late 50s that quiz shows had moved on from being, like, this quiz kid phenomenon to a real, like, all about, you know, big money, high stakes, like, you know, national televised event. Shows like the $64,000 question, uh, 21. There's a spate, and then... Produced by the same guy who did 
the quiz kids. Yeah, he was he was a real genius, and it's amazing there isn't a Wikipedia page about him because he was, you know, a huge thing in modern media uh, at a very early time. But he saw the possibilities. There had been some FCC rulings that relaxed how much money you could give away in shows, and he saw the possibility in that, and he created $64,000 Question, which was really the first modern game show. And then there was just a flood after that. And he got promoted to president of CBS Television, ultimately. But, um, you know, meanwhile, the quiz shows had gotten more corrupt. And uh, Well, yeah, I mean, he, he comes back in time to hit the, this wave of a quiz show phenomenon in America and lo, lo and behold he is sort of you know pulled back into it again this time as a, a young man yeah to be on was it $64,000 question or it was the new sister show's $64,000 challenge $64,000 challenge yeah so he's uh he sort of pulled back into this world maybe a little bit more self-aware self-assured at this point but he's pulled back into it at a time as you mentioned that these shows were completely rigged and corrupt. And up until then, you know, there was a kind of freak show element to this, but there was at least some integrity yeah. on his part. He wasn't answering these questions genuinely. No, he'd, he'd gotten just a bit more smart and self-aware, just enough to get into real trouble, you know, for, for himself, for who he was. So he thought he could come back, you know, he'd be on one of these shows, make a lot of money because he's really smart and he's really good at answering questions. Walk out, you know, that'll be great. Because as he tells the New York Post right before he does it, he only made $18,000 on Quiz Kids after being on it for 10 years or more. And, uh, you know, kids were making like 10 times that, you know, on, on in one week on these shows. So I think to him it just seemed like, okay, I'll do this one more time, make some money. You then know. I'm out for good. <laughs> one yeah. more big score. And, you know, score. And easy money, as I say, it's a classic American setup for tragedy, hmm. you know. Oh, jeez. So what happened? So he get, went on the show. It was it was heavily rigged. I think they uh, he realized that after his first appearance because it was one of these things where you come back night after night. And uh, I think he, the way I show it in the book, he realizes it on air. I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Because they gave me the questions. Right. No, they'd, they'd rig it in this really cunning way. Like yeah, they'd, like, have, they'd have another contestant come up to you somewhere else and like indicate the question. It was never spelled out, and it was never them doing it. So it was really cunning. Yeah, like the way you describe it is like they have another contestant be like, they're like, oh, like, you know, here's so-and-so. Like, why don't you guys get lunch yeah. outside of the, the studio, outside of like the, the yeah. building. So it seems like it's – and then, the, you know, in the midst of conversation, the, you know – the per the their their inside guy will just say, "Oh, I was reading the most fascinating thing about you know the opera Faust or whatever," mm. and you know the and, and then like he he prompts him like what was it the the soldiers chorus is the answer right and he he sort of walks him through oh and then this, that other show what was the name of that yeah and then like he he gives him these questions and then when they go to record later and it's funny like in in all of these game shows like the the can see was all of these soundproof booths yeah you know you're in this kind of like which was a complete you know, coffin was, or whatever. It was <laughs> yeah. three-sided. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just standing backstage, basically. And he's got the headphones on, and you're supposed to be you know, being, having the voice of God feed you these right. questions. And they'd actually heat it so you'd sweat more. It was all this stuff to increase <laughs> the tension. Yeah. And the question he gets is just what he discussed at lunch with this other person. Yeah. Unbidden. And you, you said that like, you can almost like see the moment when he realizes that he's 
he's a mark basically. Yeah, because my father even even now it was an, an innocent person. Like he doesn't understand cunning or, you know, guile or things like that. So I think it must have been a horrible shock to him and the I think he realized it and walked off after finishing, but he didn't squawk, he didn't tell anyone. He just he felt guilty and culpable and I think it really haunted him for the rest of his life. I mean, even, you know, he he begged me not to tell anyone, you know. Wow. After telling me just in the last few years. Well, how did he feel after that, you know, whole scandal came out in the open? I think he felt terrified. And they they did find him and question him and the, his mother said, you know, there were there were these terms being thrown around that shows were either controlled or rigged. Rigged obviously was very bad. Controlled was where you have an idea where the, what the contestants can answer and you're giving them softball questions. And so his mother, who was always eager to talk to the press, and I'm convinced had uh, contacts and was dropping blind items sometimes, she she was like, oh, yeah, it was totally controlled. And then they found him. And I think for him it just must have been like, you know, it was terrifying. He's a very honest person. And I think for him this was just like he'd done a crime without really wanting to. You know? um, th- this topic of, like, uh, game show rigging is – uh, dramatized in the film Quiz Show, uh, which is a very good movie. But but in that movie, you see a lot of it's it's sort of like basically once they realized uh, the ratings and national audience that they could command with these shows, yeah. which were all like at that time they're like commercials were like a show would be sponsored by one company. Yeah, and these companies quickly realized that they wanted contestants who the the winning contestants to be people who looked like their ideal customer, right. whoever they were pitching their product to. And in, in the film Quiz Show, which is based on a, you know, a true story, uh, John Turturro's character plays this uh, sort of, he, he's the guy who keeps winning, and he's this sort of outer borough Jewish guy. Yes. And he's made to take a fall because the producers of the show really want Rafe Fiennes' character, who's this, you know, highly educated wasp. Van Dorn. Yeah, wasp. You know, Van yeah. Dorn, yeah, not even, yeah, like, uh, just highly polished academic rich guy. Right. Who's like, you know, go- gorgeous, handsome guy. And they're both gorgeous. <laughs> That's I think so. <laughs> to throw a dime. <laughs> um, but again, it's like, it, 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 it's interesting, like, it, back to this thread of, like, uh, you know, Jewishness in American culture and anti-Semitism, the way it's, the way the, this sort of cuts foreign against Jewish people and popular culture and uh, television. Yeah, absolutely. And and there he was just uh, Stemple was the one who finally got angry enough to push his case. There were so many people at this point who could have done it or who threatened to, but didn't. You know, like if you look at the the history of the quiz shows, it, they were really just playing fast and loose, and it was bound to happen sooner or later. And Stemple kind of seemed like the opposite of your dad, and that he was totally cool with cheating. Yeah, like, He was fine <laughs> with it until yeah. they dumped him, and then he decided, you know what, I'm a brave, uh, I'm a brave speaker of truth now. And I, I remember when I was a kid when Chris, Quiz Show came out, and he was still alive, and they interviewed him, and he was like patting himself on the back for blowing the lid on this thing. <laughs> Whereas if they just let him stay on the show forever, he never would have said a word. Yeah, nobody learned anything. If, <laughs> if there's a Van, then Van Doren wrote a piece for the New Yorker about his, you know, reflecting back, and he clearly had learned nothing from the experience. Also, <laughs> uh, the American tale, <laughs> learning not. They a learned thing. nothing. Yep. Um. So. You know, as his as his career as a a quiz kid and quiz young adult 
comes to an end, you know. Uh, and, and and you rediscover this story, you know, uh, as as an adult, and, and 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 another part of the book is is dealing with your father as he begins to suffer from dementia, and it's you you interview him, and this is like really the first time between you that this thing has been acknowledged in his life, and really, what I mean, what you find out is that this reality show, this quiz show, and his experience was a just huge source of unacknowledged trauma in his life that really colored almost you know everything in his adult life yeah it messed him up and and uh, some of it got transferred to me that was also a huge shock uh, <laughs> that's that, what happens with uh, parents yeah kids. totally i mean kids model themselves after their parents you know it's it's natural but they like fuck it, you up your mom and dad yeah dropping that larkin joint <laughs> yeah um but it it seemed and like he like, loved that poem he yeah I bet. yeah oh man <laughs> Yeah, did he ever like acknowledge anger at his parents for letting this happen to him or, or using him in this way? You know, yeah, he couldn't. He 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 started to a bit in that last interview, and then he pulled back immediately and and, and brushed it over. That was his way. Like unpleasant thoughts in his uh, his brain were like intruders who that had to be you know pushed out and whisked away. You know, and and he hurt smoothed over. They're called thetans. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um but uh, uh yeah um there, there there there's a moment at the end of this book where uh similar to the professor saying you know why don't you leave the country there's a moment where like you know you say like you know why didn't you ever teach me math the way your dad did or and he was just like well no one told me to yeah no you one know, told like, me to build a relationship with you. Yeah, and it's it's this moment where like here's a guy who's like formative years of his life were defined by answering questions, yeah, by having the right answer to anything anyone ever asked him, yeah. smarter than even the adults around him, but at the same time needing to be told what to do all the time, or like never like a, a kind of helplessness that comes from. You know, having all the answers except for the ones that apply to you in, in your own life, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's really good, actually. <laughs> Use that for the, uh, that for the <laughs> catalog. But, it, but it's there. true. He had no idea in some ways about how to be human, you know, and how to be just a person. And he found interactions so difficult sometimes. There was one uh, memory, I, you know, among the many things I edited out of the book, but there was a bit where... I was like a teenager and I was sitting drawing and he was going out for the night and he came in and he said, Michael, I have to tell you something that's very disturbing. I received a call just now and the man asked for someone named Maria. And I said, there's no one by that name here. Uh, you have a wrong number. Okay. So a minute later he called again <laughs> and he said, well, what number is this? And I wouldn't tell him. So there's going to be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'd better stay home tonight. <laughs> um, when I was reading your reading your book, and I was thinking about like, you know, the, the culture of the 1940s and 50s, and and what we're living in now, I, I couldn't help but think about. I wanted to get your your thoughts on this phenomenon that has um, been popularized recently in in certain quarters of the media, uh, the Tiger Mom phenomenon this author uh amy amy chow uh-huh yeah and chua, she, i think chua sorry yep. amy chua um she 
wrote a book called Tiger Mom, and she did this sort of op-ed and, and talk show circuit to share the details of her very specific parenting style, which I regard as, I, I would describe as emotionally abusing your child so they can play the violin, so they right. can play the violin real nice for you and your friends. And I was, <laughs> uh, I was blown away at, at the time how positively this was received by so many, I, without, you know, sort of like, Middle, well, to in, upper, in the, middle to upper middle class in the, liberals in the, in the knowledge economy you have to prepare your children and yeah. you're honestly being a bad parent if you don't give them all the equipment they need to succeed in the cutthroat world of business <laughs> and uh and inter- information and 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 educate all the shit that you just you need your kid is only going to be able to eat if they know these things and if they can succeed in school and get into good schools after that. And, and if they can't, they're just going to end up fail children in your basement or something. But a, a, a big part of the pitch is that the, the author, you know, said, you know, I, I, I got this from my immigrant mother and my immigrant family, you know, right. that like the, that uh, usually uh, Asian, like Chinese and immigrant uh, kids in this country, their parents, you know, push them extremely hard to excel academically because they know that, like, that's the path to success. And that, you know, she was sort of selling this parenting model as, you know, that all kids should, you know, that, you know, free time is the enemy or, you know, imagination is not to be trusted. And I'm just wondering, like, are you aware of this? Or, like, do you have any reactions to this kind of stuff? It sounds pretty, pretty ridiculous. Um, I, I'm a parent. I take it very, very seriously. I, I think that it's my job to impart some of what I've learned in this life. And, uh, you know, I do have some conclusions I've reached after, you know, living as long as I have. And, uh, you know, what scares me is how passive and frightened most people are and incapable of reaching any judgment whatsoever. And, I, you know, I see bad parenting all the time. And it's, uh, you know... Being a prison guard to your child is one variety or ignoring them completely and just letting them run wild is another, you know. Um, But what what I'm trying to teach my son the most is emotional self-sufficiency, which is, you know, I think the most important thing maybe for people in this world to be able to feel okay with yourself and to be able to treat other people decently because, you know, you, you know yourself. I think that there is a third way. Okay. There's that way, yeah. and then there's the Tiger Mom way, right. and then there is getting your kid a YouTube channel when they're five, <laughs> so that that should ideally set them up for life. My son know. does have a YouTube channel. He, there you he go. started in third grade so he could shout at the camera and share videos with like two other classmates. Boom. Who needs college when right. you can monetize you know, opening your presence? He was telling me that um, he, he said... Uh, he was talking about starting an Instagram account. And I said, uh, well, okay, uh, you could talk about being a kid. And he was like, I don't want to admit I'm a kid. You can't do that. Uh, my classmate, Charisse, she she's on there. She's uh, posing as a salon owner. <laughs> <laughs> Report that account. <laughs> I, but it made me think, how many people I'm interacting with on Twitter are actually small children? And I just don't know. <laughs> I'm going to go with 90%. Yeah, the majority. <laughs> Your, your your kid is a, a highly regarded dark renaissance thought leader. <laughs> dark renaissance. Is that what it's called? Dark enlightenment. Dark enlightenment. Yeah. That's a generation early. <laughs> oh, boy. Dark oh. renaissance is where you uh, you wear the, the ruffle inside out on your neck. <laughs> it, you know, in, in, in writing this story, I'm also curious, like, in, in discovering the, the, this story of your father and 
his sort of strange celebrity at the time when celebrity culture was really beginning to be created in yeah. America. Like, I don't, I don't mean, again, I'm just curious, like you, your thoughts about like whether like, what echoes you see, like in our, our, our current media and, and pop culture. I don't know. He he wouldn't have survived if this happened now. I mean, it wouldn't have happened now, not the same way, but if he'd been famous now, he wouldn't have survived because the evidence wouldn't have disappeared so much as it did for him. Like I said, he was, uh, he was famous in a time when um, all paper was supposed to be destroyed and recycled for the war effort. And, you know, celebrity culture wasn't the same. And nostalgia, you know, in the years after wasn't the same. Even when I was a kid, nostalgia culture wasn't really a thing yet. Occasionally there'd be some fondness for the 50s or the 70s, you know, but actual nostalgia was confined to old people. And it was books with titles like, do you remember this? <laughs> you know. <laughs> And that was it. And it wasn't until like this in seventies it started to build up, and then by the eighties suddenly fan culture and nostalgia becomes a thing. And you know, not to uh, not to ring the bell here, but I mean, I think that you could track that pretty much well along the neoliberal revolution in American culture. Like yeah, the, the creation of nostalgia culture. Yeah, because whether we want to admit it or not, people stopped believing that the future was going to be better. As the, you know, like the possible the horizons of their own lives become yeah. winnowed down. Yeah. And, you know, this, Matt and I were talking the other day about that book, Staying Alive, right? Yes, how the, yes. How the 70s were like the real death of the American working class. And we also just watched Jaws. And in that book, he talks about how you Quint... have been having so much fun. Yeah. Oh, it was a hoot. We yeah, had a we great talked time. about how... Because it's, you got the three guys go out on the boat, and you've got the working class... Quint, Quint Robert Shaw. You've got the professional class, uh, rich kid, and then this, the public servant, uh, Roy, Roy Shiner. And the, the working class guy literally gets eaten... Wow, the rich kid hides behind some coral and then shows up after uh, Roy Schneider has killed the fish. Is like, hey, what happened? Uh, Do you have it? Rich people have have superior survival instincts. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, that 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 Robert Shaw being swallowed by Jaws at the end of that movie is like a metaphor for the death of the American working class in the late seventies. Yeah. yeah, and our transition into that all all that's left, like you know, is just neoliberal capitalism in the in They're the guise of this. They're you know, surviving this constant stress-filled moment because you can't really imagine a future that isn't just trying to live, you know, can, like build, just like take the piece of track that you just went over and put it in front of you so that you can just keep moving forward and not stall out and, and be totally, you know, lost or, or, uh, or ground underfoot. And so, yeah, all you really have is a memory of times that were better than this. Okay, yeah. I always I always read the end of that movie as a metaphor for nautical hazards. <laughs> <laughs> and not just that, but also not only is there that craving for nostalgia, but there's also the, uh, the material reality, which is that for, uh, you know, especially movie industry that is powered by these massive budgeted films, the investment isn't worth it unless you know you're going to get a response from the audience, which means there has to be something that you're, they already know. Otherwise, the investment isn't worth it because if you're just like, this is a new character and a new idea, we're well, yeah. right. Okay, I can't put $100 million on black basically at a roulette whale here. Yeah, yeah. I need to hedge my bets by being well, like, it's a TV show people remember or it's a character. Well, that publishing they, is like that now yeah. too. You know, It used to be more like, oh, here's something weird and cool. Look at this. You know, But now it's like, this has proven audience. Yes. You know? No, it's all podcasts, all <laughs> podcast books. No, but uh, I mean, what you were saying about how nostalgia used to be for old people, yeah, and yeah. there'd be books like "Remember This." I mean, yeah. like 
in the forties and fifties. I mean, like, who? What were you going to be nostalgic for? World yeah. War Two and the Great Depression. Like, yeah. I, oh, I remember being in that iron lung with my polio for three years. Yeah. Or yeah, I know what I what I really what I really reminiscing about is you know storming Okinawa. You know what I mean? Oh, the time I fell out of that guard tower. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as, as compared to now, where I would say millennial youth culture is nostalgia, which is really terrifying. I think now it's it's nostalgia and a constant feeling of loss. I think we all feel like oh something we love just it just went, you know, every day, you yeah. know. Like every day the world is changing and very few people I think would argue it's for the better. Well, <laughs> Steve Pinker would disagree with you. We had a talk with him uh, on Saturday. He really gave me a lot to think about about how everything's getting better every day. Was this Ozzy Fest? Yeah. yeah. Oh nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Steve Pinker was was pretty upfront. Everything's good. You're being an idiot for thinking it's bad and it's only going to get better. Oh, well, why'd you leave out the part where uh, where your dad was originally pitching the act, and you know he goes into the talent agent's office with his mom, his father, and the agent says, "No, hey, I don't do family acts." And the dad goes, "Oh, no, 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 just please, 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 we've been working on this act. It's really good. It'll knock your socks off. Just give us five minutes. Five minutes." It's that part is too well known. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it a few times. Uh, I guess I kind of wonder. Uh, how did that did your father's sort of you know stunted emotional life that came out of this experience and and inform not only you know you growing up but your decision to become an artist right, you know yeah. to do to do that kind of life to have that kind of thing that seems to me like it would be pretty far out of what he would have expected for you yeah absolutely and then you know I did mostly you know anti sense humor you know which is kind of the opposite in some ways of what he's done as well yeah so yeah no it uh, i mean my childhood there's a lot i didn't want the book to be about me it's about him so i wanted to just put it that you know some points to indicate what our relationship was right but um what happened with us was you know we lived in mansfield um and then we went to uh cambridge again when uh i was seven we moved there for two years and that was an amazing experience. Cambridge in 1973 to 1975, it was really just an amazing place to be as a kid. Like some of the smartest people in the world, you know, theaters, bookstores, used bookstores everywhere, you know, medieval architecture. Edward Country Heath. City. Edward Heath. Yes, Who doesn't exactly. love him? Yeah. Um, no, it was a big experience for all of us. And I think then, then after two years, we came back to Mansfield. So it was almost like a repeat of what he'd done before. Mm. And um, the the depression we all felt coming back to Mansfield and having to live there again, <laughs> I think, has, has seriously informed all of our lives. Uh, my mother was giving me her Wi-Fi password the other day, and it was the the name of the street we lived on. You know, back then, you know, mm. for us that was that was like the golden age. And then to come back to Mansfield, it was just I don't know. With me, what it did was uh, it cre- it made me an outsider forever yeah like i'm just an outsider you know i was i was outside then and then when i was a, a teen they sent me to private school which was just a disaster <laughs> you know and that that really cemented it so and it had the complete opposite effect of what they'd attended i think he wanted in some vague way for me to become part of the educated class and just you know be a professor too or something but it, it had kind of the opposite effect i just took against all that so much instead you went where the money is on yeah the exactly Inst- instead i chose one of the most punishing and awful <laughs> careers you can have in this world let's face it michael do you do trivia do you like trivia 
It's it's only interesting if it's interesting. You know what I mean? Like if it's pure, just what number street did this person live at? You know, that's not so interesting. But well, if that's it actually, not. I mean, I, that's a terrible trivia question unless it's like <laughs> Sherlock Holmes or something. Right. Two twenty one B Baker Street. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was saying Baker Street, but I was trying to think of the number. I knew the number. But yeah, Matt is is honestly like I I do Jeopardy at this bar sometimes. Uh, they they play it at seven o'clock and. You know, I, I brought Matt one time, and I'm, I'm pretty good at it. But like, usually I listen. I had to like listen to the whole question. Like Matt, there's no delay. He just sees it and he answers it immediately. So yeah. we got we got a real quiz kid over here. I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. it's interesting to me if it fits into a framework. You know, like right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actors and movies and stuff. I I remember everything. Like yeah. I I see, but you know, that's because it all fits together. Uh, like it's funny. Uh, when, after they switched from uh you know, promoting the war effort to just being like a regular show. You, you said that the hook for the show is that it was educational. Right. Is it like, you know, you could be like one of these quiz kids or they would highlight, uh, you know, teacher of the week or year or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Like every town and city had their own quiz kids and they would have competitions and yeah, they had a teacher of the year thing and the show wasn't really educational at all. Just, yeah. But yeah, exactly. You underscore the fact that trivia really isn't educational. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. You yeah. don't, <laughs> you learn nothing. What is this information going to do for you? You yeah. really lose information. It yeah, it doesn't build understanding of the world. It's yeah. just random shit that just rattles around in your skull. Yeah, but yeah, like that Baker Street answer just pushed out another childhood memory. Yeah, meaningless <laughs> to me. That's gone Useless forever. Worthless. Yeah, my yeah. you know my, my ninth birthday party. Whew, uh, that'll be that won't well, be before heard from and again. after the war. Things were different in some ways too. And before the war, there was this real image of the self-taught person. Yeah. You know, the autodidact. And, right. you know, that, that stopped being such a powerful idea after the war. I mean, yeah, co- the rise of colleges and stuff. Yeah. yeah like a professionalization of education. Yeah. Right. You, yeah. you, you didn't, you, somebody who learned themselves is kind of a weirdo. Why didn't you go to college? Why don't you have a degree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. What, where's, your, where's your GI college payment? <laughs> what were you, 4F, loser? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's uh, pretty much it. The book is All the Answers. Michael Kupperman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Thank Cheers, you. everybody. Bye. Bye. And Joel. I am Joel Kupperman. I am six years old and two-A at Volta School. Say, wait a minute, Joel. I thought you were going to be on Jack Benny's program right now. What what happened? Uh, well, you see, the government needed some of the time on Jack Benny's program, and... Uh, uh, both the government and me wouldn't have, there wouldn't be time enough for both the government and me. And the government was more important than me, so I got off. Oh, well, good for you. Well, now that's, that's a splendid way to look at it, Joel, and I, I really admire you. you. You really are a true little American gentleman. I hope you won't be at sea answering this question from John H. Barron of Minneapolis, Minnesota. He wants you to think of three seas named after countries or islands. Joel? Uh, there's the French Sea I read in John Winslow of the Navy, and there's the... There's two of them, the North China Sea and the East China Sea, and there's the Irish Sea and the Arabia Sea. Well, that's fine, Joel. That's all I believe me. 